The following elective was recorded live at the 2023 Fly Convention. Portions were cut due to technical issues. All right, let's get started. Uh, I had a couple interested parties uh, find out that I got done 10 minutes early on Tuesday. And apparently there's a great deal of benefit for the lunch line if I do that. Uh, so I don't want to start too much later than promised. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name's Pastor Jason Goodham. I'm a pastor in South Minneapolis at Faith Free Lutheran Church. I also teach part-time at the Bible College and Seminary. And I co-host a podcast with Adam Osier, who's next door, and Brett Bowe, who taught a workshop yesterday called Being Lutheran. Uh, I was asked this year to present on the nature of truth, and they gave me the title for my presentation. Can your truth be different than my truth? No. All right. Any questions? All right. We're good? All right. Okay. Done and done. All right. So the, the real question with this is why not? Right? That's where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. And to do that, we need to spend time in Scripture because I'm going to answer this question theologically and not philosophically, okay? So what that means, the first caveat you're gonna get from me today is uh, what I'm talking about with the nature of truth is going to sound utterly foreign to some of you because you have been taught to think about truth philosophically, which means multiple things can be true at the same time. We're going to answer this question according to scripture, and to do that, we're gonna spend some time with Jesus and Pontius Pilate. So if you have your analog or digital Bible with you, turn to John 18. So I'm gonna be John 18, verses 33 through 38, and I'll read this. I'm going to be asking for volunteer readers later on in the presentation, but I'll do this bigger chunk uh, just to get us started. Uh, and, and then we'll spend some time thinking about the nature of truth. So I'll let you guys get caught up with John 18, verse 33. We're starting there. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, before we jump into the worksheet you all have, what answer does Jesus give Pilate? Pilate says, what is truth? What answer does Jesus give? Nothing. He doesn't say a thing. And that's really important for us answering this question, can your truth be different than my truth? And what is truth is because right away, theologically, according to scripture, we're not allowed to think about truth in isolation. There are some other things that we need to frame our understanding of truth, and that's where we get to this worksheet you have. So we're gonna look, spend most of our time looking at the sheet. I know, some of you are looking at the worksheet walking in, and you're like, I was told there would be no math, right? <laughs> well, we're gonna fill it out together. We're, we're not gonna play any guessing games, right? But what we're gonna do is we're gonna construct a visual picture of reality, okay? That's what we're gonna be doing this morning, and this visual picture of reality consists of three foundations. 
the nature of God, the nature of man, and the nature of truth. And as we understand what those look like according to the Bible, then our picture of reality will be fuller and we can start to think about truth accurately and biblically. So going to the top of your sheet, the nature of God, for our purposes today, what are the two most important things we need to know about God to understand reality? Okay, the first one is God is holy. So you can put holy down. No extra charge for my amazing handwriting. All right, God is holy. Okay, where do we go in scripture to find out God is holy? We're gonna start with Leviticus 19.2. And someone look up and read very loudly for me Leviticus 19.2. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. Okay, you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. Now what on earth does that mean? What is holiness? What does it mean to be holy? To be set apart. Wait, both groups, you guys got this right, right away. That makes me so happy. Because when we talk about holiness, as we think about us as humans, more often than not, we go to the realm of morality. Right? Which means that our false understanding of holiness is this moral picture of performance. Right now, is God holy in a moral way? Yes, because God is holy in every way, and that's the concept of holiness. Holiness, as a big picture, means set apart. So now you guys got to use your imaginations on this one with me a little bit. Right now, for the purposes of spatial time in this room, I am holy and you are not. Why? Because I'm set apart. I'm the only one talking up front, right? Okay, so our understanding of God, first and foremost, is that he is holy, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly different than everyone else and anything else. God is set apart. Okay, so that's the first and most important thing we know about God. The second thing we want to know about God, this is bullet point number two there, God is sovereign. Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to say God is sovereign? He rules, he rules and reigns over all. We could say God is in control. Now, now, this is not a trick question. We can have multiple answers. Where's a good spot for us to go in the Bible to, to determine that God is in control, that God is sovereign? What, what are some passages or ideas from Scripture we could use to communicate that? Genesis, bingo, went there right away. Genesis 1 and 2. What does Genesis 1 and 2 talk about with God's sovereignty? Creation, right? God creates things. How does God create things? With his what? With his words, right? So now, I was thinking about doing this, and I decided not to because I don't like putting people on the spot. If, if I tossed a, a, a lump of clay to one of you and told, me to make, uh, told you to make me a, uh, like an elephant. I mean, by and large, everyone in this room could somehow mold clay into the shape of an elephant. What's the difference between God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2 and you making an elephant out of a lump of clay? Well, lump of clay would be very real. If I threw it at you hard enough, you would understand that. Okay, what else? You're given the material. How do humans create? We create with something that already exists. 
When God makes something, he creates out of nothing. Right? He creates out of nothing. So God speaks it into existence. Now, I want you to write that down, but put a pin in it, keep it in your back pocket, however you make a note. God speaks things into existence. Okay? So those are the two primary ideas we need to know about God to start understanding reality. Now we're going to move on. We're going to tie all this together. Don't worry. We're going to go down here to the nature of man. What are the two most important things we need to understand about mankind, about humans, to understand reality? The first one, man is... No, that's the second one. Man is created. Why might that be important? We're not sovereign. Right? If you are created, can you be sovereign? No, because it means someone created you. You're, you're not at the top of the food chain. Okay? And I heard the second one. What's the second one? Sinful. Sinful. Yeah. So man is created and man is sinful. Anyone come up with maybe a, a simple Bible verse that would tell us we know that man is sinful? There it is. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. All means all, everyone, no exception, right? And how about Jeremiah 17.9? Anyone have that memorized or can look it up for me real quick? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? All right, so God is holy and sovereign, and we could really say man is not. Man is not holy, man is not sovereign. We're con continuing to paint our picture of reality. Now we can start talking about truth. Now we can start talking about truth. Because God and man are the two brokers of truth. They're the ones who deal in truth. Okay, so now we start talking about the nature of truth. The first thing we're going to talk about is truth is objective. Truth is objective. What does that mean? What was that? It's not subjective. All right, I'm glad you brought that up because this is where we're going to start to see that creep into philosophy. All right? In philosophy, when you talk about truth, you talk about objective truth and subjective truth. We can't do that in theology. Okay? In theology, when we're talking about truth, objective and subjective are a false dichotomy because in theology, there's no such thing as subjective truth. Truth is only Objective. So what does objective mean? Measurable. Well, it's measurable a little bit. It's true, it's true for everyone all the time. Okay? In theology, if something is true, it's true for everyone all the time. That's what objective truth means. Okay? So it's always true. That's great. But there's a second nature of truth that we have to find out that puts it all together, gets our picture of reality nice and tight. And that truth must be communicated. Why is that important? 
Why is it important for us to confess that truth must be communicated? We need to know it. Good, we need to know it. And, and what are the two ways we can know something? And we're going to talk about this theologically again. And what are the two ways we can know something? We're told about it or we discover it for ourselves. Why can't we, as humans, discover truth for ourselves? Because we're sinful, right? Because we're sinful. That's where it falls in. We can't discover truth for ourselves because that discovery is an evaluative thing. It means we're making a determination on its value just simply by discovering it. It needs to be told. It needs to be revealed. Someone else needs to decide what truth is, and they need to tell us. Right? So this is our, our triangle now. We've got our three pillars of reality, the nature of man, the nature of God, and the nature of truth. Where reality consists is in the boundaries of these tensions. Okay, so the, there's a tension between the nature of man and the nature of God. And there's a tension between the nature of man and the nature of truth. And there's a tension between the nature of God and the nature of truth. And what happens and what this picture is for, and by the way, I didn't draw this. I don't have a creative bone in my body. This is my, my friend and relative Luke Quanbeck drew this up for me after I spewed out my lesson to him and he put it on paper for me. It's great. But, but everything outside the triangle, Everything outside the white space on your diagram is unreality. It's getting off into the weeds. It's getting off into the brambles. It's getting off in dangerous territory. Okay? And so the way this diagram works then, as we think about the tension between each one of the pillars, the third pillar pulls us back to reality. And if we don't use that third pillar to pull us back into reality, then we venture off into the weeds. And so that's what the discussion is going to be about for the rest of the time. So now what we need to do is we need to think about the nature of man and God together. And if we don't let truth dictate how we think about our relationship with God, how do we get out into the weeds? And so if you notice right around the edges of the triangle, there's a fatter weed that's where you put your note, okay? So if we don't let truth govern our relationship with God, what we end up with, blow this up, is imagination. Okay, and now I'm not talking about imagination as a category. I'm not talking about creativity. What I'm talking about is as we think about our relationship with God, without truth in play, we think we get to invent who God is, and what God does. And there is ample evidence for this all throughout human history. Okay? So, uh, anyone like mythology? I'm a, I'm a big mythology dork. I just love it. Uh, Greek mythology, Roman mythology, but especially Norse mythology. Okay? Norse mythology is messed up in a special way. It is, it is amazing, and it is entertaining, and it is chaotic. Like, you guys think, like, the Thor, Loki, Marvel stuff is entertaining? No, no. Real Norse mythology is hilarious. It's awesome. Okay? But you look at, look at any kind of mythology, whether it's the Greeks or the Romans or the, or, or the Scandinavians or whoever it is, what do you notice about the gods? They're messed up. They have bigger problems and bigger issues than the humans do. Because what happens when we invent God? 
He reflects us, right? He reflects us. So uh, imagination expresses itself in idolatry, but the other way we deal with our relationship with God as we use our imaginations would be Psalm 14.1. Someone look that up. Stop. How do we use our imaginations to affect our relationship with God? What's the ultimate expression of our imagination there? We pretend God doesn't exist. We pretend God doesn't exist. Right? So imagination gets us off into the weeds. We think we can invent God. We make him look like us. We make him think like us. We make him act like us. He's more screwed up than we are. Right? If we let truth pull us back into reality, pull us back towards the center, what's the opposite of imagination, do we think? See if we can get this. Not truth. We already got a whole circle with truth in it. Not reality. That's the whole triangle. Revelation. What's revelation? Not the book. What's revelation? Yeah, but who pulls back the curtain? God does. God does. So who gets to tell us what God is like? God does, right? We don't get to determine what God is like. Right? If you walked in, so I live in the Twin Cities, and the big thing in the Twin Cities is the Mall of America. So if you walk to the Mall of America and you conducted a survey, what do you think God is like? The first two words out of someone's mouth is going to be, I think. Right? But we let God tell us who he is. And does God tell us everything about himself? Does he tell us what he wants us to know? Does he tell us what we need to know? If we could understand everything there was to understand about God, would he be God? No. He'd be a pretty miserable God. But God reveals to us who he is, what he's like, and what he does. So God's revelation... We look at this bigger picture again, God's revelation. The truth of God's revelation pulls us back into reality and governs how we think about God and how we think about ourselves and how we think about us and God in tension. Any questions with that before we move on? All right, so now the next two pillars. We need to think about the nature of man and the nature of truth in tandem, in tension, all right? Nature of man, nature of truth. If we don't let the existence of God pull us back in the center, if we ignore God and just think about man and truth, what's going to happen when we go off into the weeds? What we end up with is pride. Right? Now, this is not June Pride. We're not talking about that nonsense right now. We're talking about pride. It means first we decide who God is. The next level of our pride is we decide what truth is. Okay? And the two ways humans try to decide what truth is, is with reason and emotion. So you can put a hyphen there if you want. We got reason and emotion. How do we use our reason to determine what truth is? What does that look like? Faulty logic. Faulty logic? Yeah, we're pretty good at that. I, want, I, I say a phrase, you guys fill in the blank, okay? Follow the leader. leader. Well, so we got school students over here, all right. 
Now, now, now think about watching the news or interacting on social media. Let's try again. Follow the science. I thought someone was going to go there. Anyone ever hear follow the science? Trust science? Believe in science? The way our reason goes is we determine truth that if you can see it, you can touch it, you can smell it, you can hold it in your hands, that's what reality is, right? And so we obliterate anything else except the created world around us. And we use our reason, just our brains, to determine what truth is. There's an entire period in human history where this is the primary way of thinking, and that's called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment comes around right after the American Revolution, and they say, all that exists is what you can feel, touch, taste, see, and smell, and we should respond accordingly. And, and, and that philosophy has, has perpetuated itself to the point where there's, there's a, a, a TV streaming series called The Cosmos. It was first published in the 60s and 70s. They remade it a few years ago. And the opening line of this uh, series is, all that exists is the created world. Something to that effect. Matter. Science. Now, what are the repercussions of our pride if we can only experience truth by our senses. Think about it. Let's just think about ourselves. If you are distilled down to your component chemical parts, what does that do for your value? If you're a bag of chemicals drifting through space. So last time I did this, it was roughly 10 years ago. You can chemically and scientifically break down the body into all the component parts, and then you can check for the value of that percentage on the open market. Uh, last time I did this, you know what the value of a human body was on the open market? $43 million. No. You'll be way more depressed. $33.47. What does that do for us valuing human lives? Do you see how our society can so quickly go down the road of abortion and euthanasia? If we're just sacks of chemicals drifting through the universe, are we something to be valued? Okay, so what happens in history is that the Enlightenment does this, people become just horrible, monstrous beasts, and so there's an overreaction to that, and the other way we think we can determine truth without the existence of God is through our emotions. The word you all know is authenticity. Be true to yourself. Okay? On our sheet here, what would indicate that being true to ourselves, using our emotions to determine truth might be a problem? Because our emotions lie, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now, you all know, as a matter of fact, that you can lie to someone else because you've all done it. What we don't know is that we can lie to ourselves. We can buy the lie that I deserve this thing that someone else has. We can buy the lie that a man is a woman and a woman is a man. Just because I feel a certain way in my heart. What happens when we wake up tomorrow and change our minds? What does that do to truth? Just evaporates, doesn't it? So we need the existence of God 
to pull us back to the center, to pull us back to reality. So if out in the weeds, in dangerous territory, unreality is pride, what's the opposite? What does the existence of God do for our understanding of truth? It humbles us. Humility is the opposite of pride. Okay? Why humility? We understand our nature, who we are. We understand God's nature, who he is. What happens when we compare ourselves to God? <laughs> Ufta. If you're good Scandinavian, Ufta is the appropriate response. Do we have any evidence of what happens when a sinful person is ushered into the presence of God? In Bible, in the Bible, yeah, that's happened. Isaiah 6, right? Now, Isaiah is probably, now I hate doing this because it's a dumb exercise, but maybe the most important writer in the Old Testament next to Moses, in tandem with Moses. Isaiah is a pretty important dude, okay? You know, I, you, we would be missing a lot in the church if we got rid of the book of Isaiah, right? So Isaiah, this prophet called and appointed by God, gets dropped into the heavenly throne room, experiencing God face to face. Right. right now in this room, I guarantee every single person has sung a song where that happens, where we want to be ushered into the presence of God. And it really excites us, except Isaiah, a writer of one of the longest books in the Bible, that happens to him, and he's dropped into the presence of God, and what are the first words out of his mouth? Woe is me. If you want to translate that into modern language, he says, Don't! What is going on? What's very interesting is in the Old Testament, especially in the Old Testament, the word woe was an official word. It's a liturgical term. And you said woe at someone's funeral. So if you were walking around ancient Israel and you heard someone say, whoa, whoa, your response would be, who died? Isaiah is dropped into the presence of God and what does he say? Woe is me. Humility, understanding who God is and who we are, what that means. That's how we interact with truth. And finally then, we have the nature of God and the nature of truth. And what's interesting is we need our understanding of who man is to pull us into the center. Okay, So if we understand the nature of God and the nature of truth apart from mankind... I'm not going to fish for this one. We're just going to put it on the board. We conceive of God as vindictive. Now, how do we get to the point where we think about God as vindictive? Let's think about this. Who's God? God is holy. God is sovereign, right? Hey, now, we rewind 20 minutes. Remember when we were talking about what holiness is? This is where we get into a problem. If holiness is primarily a moral thing, primarily a behavioral thing, primarily a performative thing, and God is holy, and we notice something that is not holy, what do we think God does? Right? What do the gods do when something or someone makes them angry? Punish, right? I mean, anyone read the Odyssey in here? Iliad and the Odyssey, okay? The, the entire book of the Odyssey, the premise of that book is that the god Poseidon is a jerk. 
That's the whole thing with that book, right? Because Odysseus makes him mad, and Poseidon's like, oh, you're going to have a whole lot of fun the next couple of years. And Poseidon exacts his vengeance, his vindictiveness on Odysseus. It's in our nature to think that God is vindictive. So, how many of you guys have heard of Westboro Baptist? Right? Westboro Baptist is it's no longer a big thing. About 10, 15 years ago, made news all the time. Uh, Westboro Baptist would go around spreading the gospel that God hates everyone. If you sinned and didn't believe perfectly, God hates you. And uh, if you're a member of the military and uh, died in combat, they would go to your funeral and protest how much God hates you for being in the military. And their, their message was a message of God hating things. Because if we understand truth, that God gets to determine who truth does, or who, what truth is, and we understand that God is holy, in our mind that means that, that God does good stuff and everyone who does bad stuff is, God is against, then we think God is vindictive. And we're just waiting for God to kapow people with his cosmic lightning bolt. Now, this is where we might run into a problem because we just talked about the nature of man. We're sinners, right? There's literally a sermon out there called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. What is it about the nature of man that pulls us back to reality? Not that we're sinful, but we're created. That's what everyone misses. Who created us? God did. Why would God zap us out of existence the moment we screwed up if he's the one who formed us with his hands in the first place? Why would he do that? Would that be a God you'd want to worship? Would that be a God you'd want to spend time with? Now consider, every human being that has ever lived and that is living right now, so roughly Right now, seven and a half billion people, I forget where we're at, it's just always going way up. Seven and a half billion people. Every one of those individuals is someone God made with his own two hands. It's a scope that you cannot fathom. You are not capable of imagining what seven and a half billion anything looks like. So what's the opposite of vindictiveness? Merciful. Ezekiel 33, 11. Someone look at that. All right. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord, Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn from your evil ways. For why, why will ye die without the wicked? Okay. I take no pleasure in the death of the... This is the last area where we can go off base. To say that God is merciful is to not say that God is okay with your sin. That would be a denial of truth. It would be God denying the nature of humanity. God is never okay with your sin. And so Ezekiel 33, a verse about God's mercy, God calls you wicked. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God knows that you are a sinner because God is holy and God is sovereign. 
So now let's put it all together. What happens when everything in our conception of reality meets in the middle? Let's look at the pillars first. What happens when the nature of God and the nature of man and the nature of truth meet? What do you get? Who do you get? You get Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man, and John 14, 6, who's got that memorized? I am the way and the truth and the life. So you can put Jesus or you can draw a picture of the cross. Because what happens when God's revelation and God's mercy meet our humility? You get the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not enough just that Jesus existed, which would be great, but it's that Jesus existed for a purpose. And reality is where God, man, and truth meet for the purpose of addressing God's revelation, our humility, and his mercy. So that the ultimate expression of God's truth is Jesus Christ on the cross in your place for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what truth is theologically. Now this is where we go back to our original premise. Can your truth be different than my truth? We already answered it, no. Why not? Okay, now philosophy will say something like two plus two equals four. Is that a true thing? Okay, is true plus, two plus true equal four? Is that uh, correct all the time? Will two plus two ever not equal four? No, it's true all the time. No matter how many of you guys do those weird calculus proofs in high school, no, two plus two always equals four. But what's the difference? Is it doesn't matter. Two plus two equals four has not impacted a single one of your lives ever other than a math test in like second grade, right? Jesus Christ on the cross in your place for the forgiveness of your sins, does that matter? Matters eternally, but it also matters temporally. It matters right here and right now for you in this moment. Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God's truth matters right now. So let's rewind. Let's go back to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Let's step into this conversation with Jesus Christ and Pontius Pilate. And Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. And Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? And we said, Jesus doesn't give Pilate an answer and we're wrong. Because Jesus' answer to Pilate, what is truth, is that he goes and he dies. And as he dies, what does Jesus say from the cross? It is finished. To Telestai, paid in full. So the theological nature of truth is that the perfect, holy, sovereign God of the universe created you, saw your sin, knew about your sin, and the ultimate expression of God's truth is that he, he alone redeemed you. Without your help, without your cooperation. The last thing we're going to look at is Jesus' teaching on truth. John 8, 32. Someone look that up for me quickly. 
You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, here's where I uh, beat a dead horse over and over again. If anyone's ever heard me teach anything, the primary thing that I teach as a pastor and as a professor is this. The Christian life consists of two halves. Okay? Assurance of salvation and vocation. God's truth defines the two halves of your life. Knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again for your justification, that your enemies of sin, death, and the devil have been conquered, that gives you assurance of salvation. Why? It's, it's the truth. It's real. It actually happened. It's historically verifiable that the Son of God died in your place and rose again. We have evidence for this. It means we can have peace and in that peace, we live in freedom. But the freedom God gives us isn't freedom to do anything we want. Pastor Micah addressed that last night, didn't he? Do we keep sinning so that grace may abound? What does God free us to do? He frees us to love our neighbor. That what your job right now as a Christian is to find a neighbor and love them. Because God's given everything you need for life and salvation in Jesus Christ. It means you right now are permitted to suffer. In the eternal scope of things, Jesus died for your sins. You can suffer as you love your neighbor because you have everything you need from Jesus. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 42. All right. Uh, if anyone was too scared to ask questions out loud, I'll stay up here. Otherwise, you are dismissed, and you get to head to the line ahead of time. Thank you for coming. <laughs>